Greetings, everyone. Brent coming in live with this week's episode of the Rays podcast from Missoula, Montana, as my family and I continue our RV homeschooling adventure across the Northwest. I am super excited to welcome Brittany Schaff and Colin Hennessy to today's show. Brittany is at the University of Miami, Colin at the University of Chicago, and I feel like they're always having really fun conversations with each other which I often hear about when I talk to either one of them. And I thought by inviting them on the podcast, it might be my ticket to be a part of one of those conversations. So welcome, Brittany and Colin. Thank you, Brent. Pleasure to be here. All right. So I'm going to start with Brittany. Uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit about your current role at the University of Miami, then I'll kick it to Colin. And then I want to figure out how you two became thick as thieves along your advancement journeys here. Well, thank you for the introduction. Um, I am the Assistant Vice President of Philanthropic Giving and Digital Engagement here at the University of Miami. I'm very fortunate to have three teams that I get to work with every day. Um, Our teams are broken up into priorities. The first team is a philanthropic giving team, which is what most people would refer to as an annual giving shop. So a philanthropic giving team that supports our schools and colleges on the university side. I have a similar team, but that supports our University of Miami Health System and Miller School of Medicine, inclusive of donors, but also grateful patient fundraising. And the third team um, is our digital engagement team, which is responsible for both digital marketing and effectively um, converting passive engagers to active engagers and donors. I'm guessing some version of the first two teams has been around for some time and that the third team is newer. Tell us a little bit about just the evolution of that third team and when it went from maybe an area where folks were dabbling or they were starting to test different approaches to deciding that it really warranted an actual team build out. Great question. So um, the philanthropic giving for the university team has been um, uh, active for quite some time. Um, The philanthropic giving team for our U Health system actually has not, um, and it's not been combined to the way in which it is right now. But you're right, the digital engagement team is completely new. I'm very fortunate to have uh, fantastic and innovative leaders and leadership here at the U. Um, And they actually foresaw this before I arrived at the University of Miami and created a um, digital first digital engagement team that is a mix of, again, digital marketing and essentially data mining to really understand who our audience is worldwide and what they actually want from us to partner with gift officers for lead generation and other types of conversion practices. Awesome, great setup, can't wait to get into that. Colin, tell me a little bit about your journey and what you're focused on these days at UChicago. Sure thing, Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be here with the two of you. So at the University of Chicago, I lead the university-wide efforts for annual giving and uh, alumni engagement, and I'm the executive director of UChicago Alumni, which is our alumni association, which we've kind of sunsetted the term alumni association in favor of simply UChicago Alumni and Friends. Uh, like Brittany, I've got a variety of teams that, uh, that I support, as I like to think about it, um, including regional engagement, annual giving, reunions, 
communications, intellectual engagement, all kinds of good stuff. Um, and we're doing some neat things at the University of Chicago right now, uh, particularly in our hybrid model where everything we do, we're thinking about both the engagement aspect of it and how that promotes lifelong philanthropic engagement. Colin, how do you meet Brittany? <laughs> so <laughs> Brittany, Brittany and I have known each other for, for a, a number of years. And back when we both actually represented different institutions, uh, we were both the member uh, representative of a professional organization that is near and dear to both of our hearts. And uh, Brittany was attending her first meeting of this group and we were at dinner. It was in New York City, NYU was hosting and they had taken over an entire restaurant. And I was sitting at a table with people I'd known for a number of years and I could hear um, in the distance, Brittany talking about something that was really interesting to me. And I immediately started thinking like, who is Brittany? Like, what's she about? And all this other kind of stuff. So being uh, the uh, kind of always on my phone person that I was, I immediately looked her up on LinkedIn. And moments later, she walked over and said, hi, we're looking at each other on LinkedIn right now. We might as well meet face to face and in person. And so she clocked me right away by having uh, looked at her LinkedIn profile where I was super impressed by all that she had done. We've now, of course, moved to two institutions that are different than those, um, but remain in that same professional organization, which is great. So we still get to see each other outside of COVID times um, annually in person and spend a lot of time on, um, on Zoom calls and, and the like together talking. So it was the first time I will say I have ever been called out in such, <laughs> in such a way, but, um, but it, it immediately endeared me to Brittany. So it was good. Well done, Brittany. Is that an accurate uh, rundown from where you sit? It was very accurate and a very nice way to explain our introduction to each other. Thanks, Colin. I'll add that ever since then, I have this in the back of my mind thought, I really should get a premium LinkedIn account because that way I can know who is looking at my profile. But Colin, if you had sprung for the premium LinkedIn account, the three of us might not be on the podcast today. So it's all good. You never know. Um, so you referenced that professional organization. Would you mind saying what it is? Sure. Uh, so I, it's the, the Annual Giving Directors Consortium, AGDC. It's a group of 40 institutions, private, public. Um, and I believe the University of Chicago is one of the founding members, but I could be totally wrong on I will say from the vendor perspective, I think of AGDC as like the fight club of advancement because you can't find anything out about it anywhere. Nobody really talks about it. So I hope you didn't just break some kind of code of ethics by even acknowledging that you're a member of the secret society that is AGDC. Um, I don't think we broke anything, but now that you say it, I also feel like we should have a handshake or some sort. So we should talk about that at our next meeting that we can't tell anyone when that is. Definitely. If there ever were such a thing. Um, <laughs> that all being said, I, you know, one of the things we always acknowledge and love about this sector is how collaborative it is. You all met in that setting. You've been able to um, uh, sort of build a relationship following that initial LinkedIn uh, I almost said creeping, but I didn't. So, um, tell me. So, but creeping. tell me a little it's bit fine. about 
um, you know, in all seriousness, sort of on your journeys, um, just the benefit of building out your personal brands, your personal networks by getting involved into communities like that. And we have a lot of folks listening on the Raise podcast that haven't necessarily found that home yet, right? We've had Howard Heavener on the show who talked a bunch about uh, how much he loves AGDC. And, and I think for a newer advancement professional, you might not realize how many um, ways there are to connect with your fellow peers. Certainly case can be one avenue, but there are other ways as well. When along your journeys did you sort of discover AGDC and um, just kind of what has it meant to you? Um, obviously, besides the, the two of you personally getting connected, Brittany, would you go first? Sure. Um, that's a great question. Um, I actually didn't start out at a large institution. In fact, I, I didn't start out working in fundraising really at all. I was a coder. So um, I started building my network by just reaching out to individuals I found, frankly, on LinkedIn and thought what they were doing was really interesting. And I asked them questions. So I would message people and then set up one-on-one calls with them or uh, if, you know, it was pre- way pre-COVID. So I would do it in person if possible and just started asking questions and trying to understand more about this entire profession. Um, that led me to a variety of smaller or neat, more niche kind of environments um, around data or just digital marketing or how to create pipeline. That was a big word when I first started, especially in like leadership annual giving. Um, that's how I started. AGDC, though, it has been and, and organizations like it have been tremendously helpful, though, in my career. Um, and I highly advise anyone reach out to someone in the AGDC group, although we don't publish those names. Obviously, we just disclosed that Colin and I are both in it. And for anyone who's listening, I'm more than happy to connect with you. Um, but there are other organizations like that. Even your case district groups um, can help with that. There's obviously networking available there. It's all digital now, which I think everyone can then go to. Um, but that's how I, w- I started. And that's frankly how I still continue. When I need something, I have people I can just call now or text like Colin. Um, and we talk, you know, frankly, around once a week. <laughs> um, so that's how I would suggest continuing and start or starting the process. Great advice. Colin, what's your take? Yeah. So ATDC, I, similar like i i did not grow up in the advancement world my first career is in technology you know a little akin to to Brittany. and i transitioned into a fundraising career as a volunteer i was spending all of my free time volunteering for the public library in the iowa city where i lived and really kind of got the bug i loved the idea of asking people to support something that they were passionate about for me it was the library I then got my first development job at the University of Iowa where I went to undergrad, just like Howard. We were a couple of years apart from one another. And I was at a Big Ten development um, benchmarking conversation and in the ballroom kind of to the side was where the AGDC was meeting. So I'd always kind of heard about it, but it seemed really like a secret society. And it wasn't until I was at Penn where I became the institutional representative for AGDC that I really got to understand what it was. So. It's a, it's a tremendously valuable um, group of people. There's, like I said, there's 40 institutions. But one thing that's not lost on me is that I am not a member of AGDC. The University of Chicago is a member of AGDC. And so, you know, when I leave at some point the University of Chicago, I don't take AGDC with me. I take the relationships that I formed with me, but not the membership. 
And so to Brittany's point, like just figuring out who we are and connecting with us, I think is, is an invaluable resource. When I was first getting my, you know, cutting my teeth in the development world, like I, I went to every AFP meeting I could. I went to every one of those kind of grassroots organizations. And I got my job at Penn because I happened to be at a case conference where I met someone and got a business card. So like never underestimate the power of just getting business cards. And as Brittany said, calling people and asking questions, but also offering something. Like I'll have a question, but also I'll have something that I might be able to offer. And you know, recently I was able to, uh, to join Brittany in, in a Zoom webinar for her entire advancement shop. I'm also very much in the position of saying yes, whenever I can. You know, like Brent, you emailed and said, hey, do you wanna be on the podcast? Yes, I do. Brittany emailed, do you wanna be on this webinar? Yes, I do. Because every time you do that, like you get more exposure and then more people to connect with. Yeah, no, I think it's well said. And I am curious though, because I have been fortunate to serve on cases industry advisory council where they basically bring in vendor partners. Uh, you know, we're obviously part of that community uh, and, and, you know, case has gone through a huge transition as we all have over the, the course of the year. And I think one of the real areas that I, that I wonder if either of you have a point of view on is so many people cite just as you did, Colin, that, it, it, you know, yes, like, the content and the sessions can be valuable at case conferences, but it's really about the relationship building and that sort of in-person connecting, or maybe it's the dinner example at AGDC. And I feel like that's probably the area that I am missing the most right now as we've shifted to this, this digital um, only environment. And, and we're fortunate that, you know, we know each other and so we can sort of stay connected and you all can text each other. But if you're, somebody who's still trying to establish that professional network, what do you do right now at a time when you, you know, you aren't going to case conferences, you aren't coincidentally running into somebody on the floor that then leads to another kind of career opportunity. And my sense is you probably need to be a little bit more proactive the way that Brittany was describing, um, as opposed to just, you know, counting on those organic interactions in, in, in environments like case, but have you, dealt with that with your colleagues at all or do either of you have new team members that are maybe still trying to find their footing that that are struggling with that uh colin maybe you can comment first yeah so i have a couple of ideas on this you know uh thankfully i, I have a relatively extensive network or i know people have extensive networks and so when i am hiring people i'm able to connect them through that kind of linkedin space which is i think a tremendous opportunity for us but i'll say as you know, something that you were just saying, Brent, really made me think that this may be one of the areas where a vir virtual life through, you know, Zoom and so forth that we're living, there may be a slight advantage here. And I'm not, I'm not this bold, but I know people who are, who will post like a open call on LinkedIn. They'll say, hey, I'm a new professional in this field. I'm looking to network, you know, direct message me or something like that. And we'll set up a a group Zoom or something like that. It's a relatively low threshold, right? Most of us have Zoom accounts and you can do a social distance coffee bar for a whole bunch of people. Like, I think there's something to that. Um, and I would be very interested, you know, to see people who, who find su success doing so. Brittany? 
Yeah, I love that example, Colin. Um, you know, I have a lot of new team members on my team, and I've, I've actually hired a lot of people during COVID um, and onboarded them remotely. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, and so that's a whole other probably topic of how do you do that during COVID. But a lot of them are still remote. I have staff members who actually live out of state. Um, and so not only are they maybe somewhat new to the profession, they're definitely new to my team. They've never stepped foot on campus. They have no idea what Miami is actually like as a university. Um, you know, I love the idea that Colin said, I'd actually even maybe flip it on its head a little bit and maybe encourage people like you know, I'm putting it out there, Colin, maybe people like us who have more robust networks to then do the same thing on LinkedIn. Hi, I'm hosting an open forum. I'd be more than happy to talk about these kind of five topics, right? And we can make them macro or, or as micro as we want and say, let me know if you would love, if you want to talk and I'll send you the link. And maybe do it two ways where we have maybe very proactive uh, individuals who are new in the profession, as well as people who are a little bit more tenured, also extend the olive branch as well. Because I think to your point, the AGGC group is fantastic and case is fantastic, but there is a point where we need to maybe pivot the model of networking even more so than we have, I think, to this point. I'm just going to give one of our listeners a shout out because I, I think it's reflective of the importance of just being able to initiate and being able to stand up, walk over, say hello to somebody uh, and get to know each other like you did, Brittany, or also uh, in a more virtual context. There's a, a guy named Tyler Kramer who used to be at uh, Kansas State who just moved over to Wichita State University. He's been a longtime listener of the Rays podcast. And he just shot me a note on LinkedIn earlier today and it said, hey, it's been great being on the podcast or, or the podcast has been fantastic. It's allowed people to new, meet new people in the sector, learn and keep growing. And he said that he just reached out to Chris Berrigan from the University of Utah, who was on one of our recent episodes. They now connected over LinkedIn, had an hour conversation, and they feel like they have this kind of ongoing rapport. So uh, Brittany and Colin, be on the lookout. I imagine Tyler will be reaching out at some point. But for others who maybe feel, I don't know, intimidated by just putting yourself out there or, or taking that first step, it really is such a welcoming community. And you know, the worst thing that could happen is no response or, uh, you know, or, or somebody not being interested. And that's okay, right? I mean, you're not, you, you know, we all have to get used to um, hearing no, uh, but I suspect that you'll hear yes more often than not. Um, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit because both of you, I feel like, are really at the forefront, at the intersection of alumni engagement and pipeline development. You've already mentioned pipeline development, Brittany. Um, Colin, you obviously have uh, uh, even more direct oversight around areas that historically have been some of the most acute silos in the sector. We've got alumni engagement over here and all of these activities being done either offline or increasingly online to build affinity and rapport and connectivity. And then in doing so, that should provide data that can inform both annual giving outreach, renewals, upgrades, stewardship, but also pipeline development and certainly generating long-term major gift revenue. And so uh, I feel like there have been few areas of the sector that have evolved as quickly uh, really over the last few years and then certainly over the last few months. Uh, and I guess I just like your perspective, given that you've both um, you know, grown up in the field to a certain uh, degree of how you think about that intersection of alumni engagement and revenue generation today versus what it might have felt like earlier on in your careers when you were when you were getting going in this field. Um, Brittany, I might 
uh, put you on the spot first, but kind of as you think about the role and that evolution at Miami specifically, and then relative to other shops you've been a part of, what's the sort of before and after and where do you see things going? I mean, that is a, a tremendous question. Uh, so let me try to break it down and answer it. Um, no, I think you're right. I think historically we've had massive silos between alumni engagement or alumni relation and any revenue generation stream, whether it's annual giving or I call it philanthropic giving or major gifts or anything of the sort. Yeah. I, I feel like we, the, the, the most we've had is correlations, right? Yeah. People that are engaged give more often. And it was sort of like that was enough for a long time. It was like we just kind of know that it makes people feel good. We, we suspect their outcomes. And then MIT does a correlation study and we run with that for 10 years. And I think the evolution though is that's not direct enough, right? How do we really have one part of the program um, supporting the other more directly, almost assembly line style, or as we talk about often the giving funnel? Sure. Yeah. No, I would, I would say I don't even know if there was a, a correlation, let alone a causation between engagement that was structured and quantifiable and measured over time. Um, historically, I think now we've shifted into that model. So at, at the U, um, I can say we are not siloed. Um, and it's actually quite enjoyable to, to see the change evolve even pre-COVID. Um, we started this before I, I arrived, frankly, and I think now we've hit the gas pedal and just keep putting our foot down on it. Um, but right now we will look at, and we have looked at uh, alumni engagement and my shop essentially as collaborative entities that ebb and flow within each other. So my job and my team's responsibility might be to play with the largest base, right? That's what we usually call annual giving, the largest base. But I look at it a slightly differently where people are coming in and out and they're provided as lead generation uh, referrals to alumni engagement officers to at least do qualification with that are very warm. So for an example with this would be what we've done with your platform, Brent, right? At Miami, we have Evertrue. And when people engage on certain posts, we will take them down and pass them over to to alumni relations or alumni engagement officers and have warm follow-ups. Those follow-ups could be simplistically a qualification. Um, Hi, I'd love to talk to you more about shark tagging uh, at the University of Miami. They might be like, why are you talking to me about this? But it's because they just commented on a post I put out on Facebook about shark tagging at the U. And at the same time, those individuals might be put back into an appeal um, within a week from my team asking for revenue um, or a gift to that program here at the university. So I think there's a new kind of shift, um, though I wouldn't argue it's new. I just think it's being optimized right now, yeah. shifting between um, alumni and annual giving or philanthropic giving in the way in which that we operate in the same proverbial sandbox. And I love that example. I love the shark tagging example. It's highly uh, interest specific. It would not make sense to most institutions, but it would make a lot of sense to a subset of your population. At the same time, um, what about folks that might say, wait, you can't talk about our alumni as leads. That doesn't sound right. That's a little bit too for profity in nature. Um, how do we balance any of those concerns? Or maybe we just need to get over it and just accept the fact that your job is to help generate revenue for your organization to help support the next generation. I mean, 
How do you think about that? Well, I think it's our responsibility to provide our constituents with information that is meaningful to them, that they are passionate about. And the easiest way to do that is to understand what they're saying and how they're saying it, and then provide them information, whether it's shark tagging or something else, that resonates with them. And we can call them leads, we can call them whatever we want, but at the end of the day, I do think it is our responsibility to provide areas where individuals in our community can learn more, engage more, and if they so choose, provide a gift toward. Absolutely. They let's call it digital lead generation funnel, it makes a lot of sense. Certainly it's an area that we care a lot about at Evertrue, but when you contrast that with traditional offline engagement, I mean, we could have been doing the same thing around event attendance, right? Colin and Brent register for the event. We have the event list. We analyze the leads. We see that they're warm and we have somebody go and follow up with them. And I know that happens at some places, but I think it's fair to say that that has not been the status quo. It was like the engagement and event activities were over there. Development officers were over here. They already had people in their portfolio. So weeks, months, years, decades could go by. And Brent and Colin had gone to that event, but there was never that kind of proactive follow-up. So why is it that in a digital context, I don't know that's okay or it's becoming a part of your strategy or maybe you're starting to um, introduce the same kind of philosophies for traditional engagement like event attendance. We are, um, to be honest, but to your question, I think it's more of the why now maybe, um, yeah. why are we doing this now? You know, I think our, our times have changed and if, and a shift in our culture as we have one right now in the pandemic is requiring us all to shift in the way in which we approach our work. And for our profession, it might feel uncomfortable at times, but we have to shift. Um, and I think this is only the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to start seeing far more marketing technology and marketing shifts between annual giving, let alone how the rest of the, you know, most divisions operate when it comes to uh, engagement overall, let alone how we approach fundraising. Well said, Colin, I have to bring you in here because I know that you're also a member of CAAE. And I was fortunate to get to um, attend a CAAE event, which is slightly less fight clubby, but still pretty hard to get into. And um, and what I, what I really found fascinating about CAAE, which is the Council for Alumni Association Executives, is that there is a spectrum of uh, shops represented. On one hand, organizations, let's say like Stanford, for example, where the Alumni Association um, would, would argue their mission is much purer around engagement. I think, uh, if I recall, as an Alumni Association uh, professional at Stanford, you can't even see someone's giving history because they truly want everybody to be treated uh, equal, irrespective of giving. And then on the other end of the spectrum are shops where there really is great integration or uh, not saying great is the only way to do it, but where there is tighter integration. Uh, I think of shops like Boston University, for example, and probably yours from what I understand of your role at UChicago. But, but how do you think about kind of Brittany's comments and then uh, kind of where maybe you Chicago or, or, you know, Penn sort of fit on that spectrum. Yeah. So one of the things that Brittany mentioned that I 
been saying a lot and my team is optimization. So I really like that word because I think we're doing some good stuff already, but you know, we need to keep turning the dial and, and just get it better. I think the fact that, you know, prior to my arrival, we were combined. Like we used to be an alumni relations team and an annual giving team. And again, prior to my uh, arrival, the two teams were merged and, and I'm in favor of that um, because I think it does naturally provide us the opportunity to make some of those connections and have some of those collaborative conversations that we wouldn't have had previously. Um, the event, you know, if I can tie back to the event conversation we're having, something that we recently were doing is, and we are about to launch again is we transitioned our faculty led uh, series online entirely in the spring. And we did a series of five lectures and we had nearly 25,000 people RSVP for them and had um, just under 14,000 actually attend them live, which we were over the moon for, really excited about. One of the lectures specifically has now had like 110,000 views on YouTube. So we're really excited about that because clearly there's content here uh, that people are excited about. We really analyzed the data to understand who these people were, you know, and, and one of the, th the, the data points that really stands out to me is that almost 1,800 of the people who attended this lecture had never, ever attended an event before, and they were able to attend this virtual lecture. We had a 434% increase in young alumni attending these lectures because they're virtual. They were online. They could get to them when they normally probably couldn't leave their desks because of the type of work um, that they found themselves in. And what we learned from this is that you know, we could serve out this data to our regional major gift officers. And then that was an incredible way for them to get conversations going. You know, they would email people out and they say, I saw you attended the Harper lecture. Tell me how it went. And they had these great conversations from that and, and things that we wouldn't have done maybe as naturally before because our previously all the lectures were regionally based versus now kind of globally based. So that kind of synergy that we're having and, and the pressure that I'm putting on the team to be thinking about where are those, where are those opportunities uh, for collaboration across the enterprise, I think are, are so much more pronounced right now. In thinking about your question about, you know, the members that I know of CAE, and you're right, it is, it, there's about 85 institutions in CAE, and it's a combination of schools like the University of Chicago, and Penn is there, and Stanford is there, but then Michigan is there, and some of the big, big state schools are there. Very kind of traditional dues-based, membership-driven programs. But what I think we, I think that there is kind of this bifurcation of the group of, of that classic kind of alumni association that is like a separate 501c3, they're their own universe. And then the places like Stanford and Penn, Columbia, Chicago, where we're somewhere in between. And I think even on the continuum, like I worked very closely with my colleagues at, in alumni relations at Penn, like really closely, but we were two different teams. You know, I was annual giving and they were alumni relations. Um, I think it's even further separated, as you noted, at Stanford. Um, but at Chicago, I'm taking kind of all of the best things that I've heard around the industry and trying to kind of infuse that into my team. I consider myself a fundraiser first and then an engagement person if I had to pick, but they're probably like 41, 49, 51, somewhere in that space there. And I'm constantly encouraging my team to think about how they can be a part of the process. I don't want people to think I'm only this or I'm only that. We are all everything. And every one of the opportunities that we can connect uh, with our alumni and friends is an opportunity for them to deepen their relationship with the institution.
I'm curious, Colin, as you think about, you know, the faculty lecture example, I love, and we've heard so consistently, Cindy Frederick from UVA was sharing how many more people they were able to reach by shifting to a much more digital Zoom oriented event. And look, we all want a great in-person event. I certainly could use one and we all could, but it has been really neat to see uh, across geographies and different demographics that people can participate in a way that they otherwise could not have. But I also feel like one of the opportunities is to start to, you know, from a leadership and communication perspective, to be able to start connecting those dots, to be able to say, hey, we, we pivoted, we put our faculty lecture online, we had this many people show up, this many people were then referred to major gift officers, the major gift officers had 15 conversations following that seven of those people are now interested in supporting us. And there are three proposals already created worth $400,000. So, Hey team over there, I know that you get busy and, and it's a, it's a lot of work to just plan the lecture and put it on, but you help generate $400,000 of pipeline already. Keep it up. And like, is that happening yet? Or do you see things like, how do you kind of close the loop and, and, and I don't know, keep your team excited about why it is we're doing all of, of these things in the first place. Yeah, so I think it, I think it is happening. And I think, uh, so for example, the, the conversations that I noted, uh, after one of our Harper lectures, when we sent that information out to our regional major gifts team, we got uh, a response back that one of the gift officers was able to have 60 conversations with people oh, that wow. ordinarily wouldn't have kind of responded back. Now, the next piece of like generating X number of dollars in the, in the queue, we're not there yet, but we are to the point where we're able to report those things back. And the day that I shared that news, like people got really excited on the team because as you mentioned, Brent, it does connect those dots because it feels like it's one thing to host the party and then you clean up after it and you're like, what good did that do? A follow-up that we're doing that I'm really excited about, and I, I can take no credit for this aside from just a phone kind of introduction, but we have uh, leadership societies at Chicago, like most institutions do. We have a giving society, a loyal giving, um, all of those things. And traditionally in an in-person event for a Harper lecture, we would host a dinner. After the, the main event, we would host a dinner for the select group of leadership society members who were in attendance with the faculty member. Can't do that right now. And so what we did instead is we emailed the group of people who attended one of our Harper lectures who were a member of a society and said, we've got an extra hour for you for a moderated conversation between the author and a media profile. We'd love to have you there. And then uh, as an added bonus, we sent a signed copy of the book that that faculty member just recently published. We invited about 700 people to that 450 showed up and the questions were amazing. It was an intimate conversation with the faculty member and it was just really, really rich. And you could be an annual donor who gives $5 every year and is a member of our leadership, of our um, loyalty giving society uh, and you would be invited or you could be someone who gives us half a million dollars every year and you get invited. And mm -hmm. I, I love the fact that it was, if you're a member of one of our societies, doesn't matter which one, you get this special invitation. So as we think about the next series or the next um, kind of uh, season, as it were, we're going to be offering these again. You know, you're making me think of just some of the unexpected 
you know, there, there's definitely this narrative of, um, look, online, you can get more scale, but it just isn't going to be as special as being in person. But then you share examples like you just did, which just simply those people could not have all physically showed up to the event and, and been a part of the experience at all. And so even if you could have had everybody in, in person, um, maybe it would have been marginally better, but just the combination of intimacy plus scale is really neat. And I think of it almost like the examples you saw right when COVID hit of college professors basically Zoom bombing classes who never could have been walking across campus class to class. And like, or I guess I should say, there's no reason they couldn't just randomly show up in classes other than they're really busy and it's hard to physically move around. And so this whole idea of being a Zoom link away from every person in the world or a good chunk of the world really does open up possibilities for how we can create special moments at a larger scale. I'm curious, Brittany, if you've had equivalent experiences yet, or, or, you know, maybe these are some of the ideas you and Colin are texting about on a, on a weekly basis. Probably to be honest, um, <laughs> to answer that, um, you know, we have, we don't have something to the scale as the Harper uh, lecture series that Colin was referring to. I, we did roll out a, a Kane's crash class series. Um, and we started it right when school started here at the U and we continue to do it, but we will not announce when it's happening. And so we have notable Canes alumni and non-alumni who will just randomly crash a class. We did have a couple pretty notable alums that are well known to the U do so um, and have, you know, I think we're at, you know, 50,000 views on YouTube on just that one crash, but we don't just have these alums crash a class and say hello and leave. There's actually about a 15 to 20 minute interaction between the students, um, which I think is really important, especially right now, just reinforcing to our students that it's not just faculty and staff that are there for them and have their back, it's the entire community. And making sure that we diversify who's actually crashing and it's not just the top five people that we can always think about, but really making it specific. So for instance, we had a really well-known um, Broadway singer crash a class for our Frost School of Music. And it wasn't just any class. It was actually with a professor that he went to school with. And they, he, you know, the, the alum was an undergrad and the professor was a graduate student at the time. So we went the ex, I think my team, and I can take literally no credit for this. My team found out all of these intricacies between the alum or the notable cane and paired them to the right person at the right time with the right class. And then we followed up with the students to make sure they felt like they had a good time, if they had any feedback. A lot of them wanted like the email address of these notable canes, which unfortunately we couldn't necessarily give out. Um, but there was a lot of social that was tied to it. I think it was just a really good feel good moment, but it had legs. Um, a lot of yeah. these notable canes are also um, supporters of the U. And so it gave also our gift officers who have a relationship with them another way to connect with them. That was a little bit more on a, um, an emotional basis than a no philanthropic one. And that's the thing is on one hand, you can think of it as, hey, we are asking these notable alums to do us a favor and come in and, you know, Zoom bomb or cane crash the classes. But like, what an amazing experience for them as well. And I think that, you know, they're only a Zoom link away. And so it's not just, hey, that was special for the students. I bet 
that for those alumni who maybe couldn't have physically shown up at the Frost School of, of Music or, you know, couldn't have made the trip back had it been a year or two ago and you had invited them to do so, it's almost like how could they not jump in and, and have what, you know, should be a mutually beneficial um, experience. And I do wonder, is there an alumni version of that, right? I think about, um, I went to Brown. I want John Krasinski to be able to drop in and, and Zoom bomb us in, in one of these, uh, you know, one of these alumni events that are upcoming. So um, I think those are the kinds of, um, you know, creative sparks that it's sad that it took a global pandemic to, to move in that direction. But I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to settle out in a scenario where that kind of surprise and delight moment can be applied to students. It can be for faculty. It can be for uh, current supporters. It can be for future supporters. Uh, and I know, Brittany, you've got your first um, giving day upcoming in this sort of fully remote virtual context. I just watched the video that you put out to kind of hype people for that. I'm hyped. I think other people are probably hyped. But how do you think about preparing for this year's Giving Day relative to probably many years of Giving Days that you've been um, helping execute over the last decade or so? Well, thank you for aging me. Um, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's definitely different. Um, you know, Colin reference, we met at prior institutions. He was at Penn. I was actually at Hopkins. Um, and so the, the giving days in person are very different, right? Um, you have faculty there, you have staff, and frankly, you have students. Um, and that's really what giving days are, are really about research programs, scholarships, students, um, healthcare heroes or healthcare workers, that if you have them. And so it's different. Um, my team is phenomenal. Um, and I am so honored to be part of their, their group. We based our giving day a little bit differently in a gamified model. So there's digital gamification um, throughout the day. So um, when I say that, I mean digital challenges throughout the day um, to different entities, which is frankly, what most people do on giving day, we're relying more on texting and how to really engage. Now, usually on giving days, we'll throw out, you know, 100 people who post a picture of their dog in, you know, our university swag, um, you know, Bob Smith will donate $1,000 to you. And we're still going to do something like that. But we're taking it a little up, an up I think a notch. Um, we're going to code augmented reality bots and do digital scavenger hunts, for instance, across our community. So they are for our alumni, as well as current students. And we do have some students on campus, but we don't necessarily want them doing a scavenger hunt on campus. Um, one of the things that we have to really continue to work on is educating our students on philanthropy. So one of the best ways I thought my team thought to do that is how do we make a game out of philanthropy for our students, but also our alumni? And so what we're going to do is highlight instances of philanthropic support on campus. So not notably would be our buildings that are named, but also things within buildings that are really well known. Um, individuals like faculty or uh, deans that have endowed chair positions, for instance, and what, does, what do those mean? And so we're going to tie that education model to a uh, bot, essentially, a, a, a actual visual bot that grows every time you get a clue right. And we're going to do it leading up to giving day and then on giving day. And although that doesn't have any true ask around it, I think we can all agree that COVID has really shown us that we need to optimize our engagement, not just our asking. 
Well said. Colin, when you think about, you know, prepping for fiscal 21, um, you know, obviously this spring was sort of just scrambling and trying to pivot and adjust. And, uh, and then I think the summer was probably, you know, some, uh, you know, considerations around what type of education would be going on in the fall. But I think from an annual giving perspective, we at least sort of knew we wouldn't be doing what, it, you know, we were doing at the beginning of fiscal 2020. So kind of what are some of the, the big adjustments or changes? I mean, you mentioned your faculty lecture series, but do you see other examples like that that you're excited about that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, so from a classic annual giving perspective, we're really trying to hold fast to kind of the basics, the things that we know work while also pivoting to the new environment that we're living in. So we're still omni-channel, we're, we're operating on, on every cylinder that we possibly can, while also pushing more out in the digital space than we typically would. We're cognizant of the fact that there's a US presidential election, all kinds of things happening right now. Um, so we're thinking about that. But you know, you you, re you referenced Howard earlier, and I will I will reference him again. Like Howard is talking a lot about giving days plural, and we're thinking a lot about that as well. Our giving day is traditionally in the spring, typically sometime in April, and it will be again this year. We did not host our giving day last year, um, given all that was happening in the world. Our timing was just not not right for us. So we'll be coming back with our full giving day in the spring, but we're also gonna heavily lean into Giving Tuesday in ways that at the University of Chicago, at least at the college, we have not recently. And so we're thinking creatively about how we can use that as a kind of ignition point for December. Uh, we've relaunched our crowdfunding page and we're, we're hoping to drive traffic to that uh, during the month of December. We're also doing things like uh, an at-home homecoming, uh, sometimes surprising to folks that yes, the University of Chicago does do homecoming. As a founding member of the Big Ten, we do have roots uh, in, in all things sporting, a first Heisman Trophy winner at University of Chicago. Um, and so we'll be doing an at-home um, homecoming event. We're already thinking about what our alumni weekend will look like. We've got a lot of exciting virtual programming um, coming at our alumni and friends, and in each and, of the, each and every one of those opportunities, we're thinking about how we can also connect them with uh, philanthropy at the institution. We, um, we have a rather strong tradition of incentives in, in, at my program, and last year we did a Lego set, uh, a classic iconic building on our campus with a little minifig of the dean of the college that people really, really liked. Um, and this year we're coming back with a very popular incentive that we've done in the past, which is a puzzle. So we have a thousand piece puzzle that will soon be um, headed out uh, to those who make a gift. Um, and at a time like COVID where people are puzzling more than ever, uh, why not puzzle and support the University of Chicago? Seems like a very relevant incentive at this point. And um, uh, look forward to hearing how that goes and, and, and maybe seeing uh, some puzzles surface on my social feed within my UChicago uh, community. Can I just ask, like when you think about, and this doesn't need to be UChicago or the U specific, um, but if you could wave a magic wand and really change one thing about the advancement sector that you think maybe is holding us back, or maybe when you're at AGDC and a quasi-group therapy uh, setting, uh, what are just some of the pain points that everybody kind of knows exists, but just we haven't yet been able to overcome? I mean, 
Does anything come to mind um, for either one of you if you had that magic wand? I mean, I can jump in. I would say one of the things that's evergreen for us and, and what I'm thinking about is, is young alumni. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. the young alumni population is a challenging population for so many good reasons. And I think right now we are uh, feeling that even more so given the experience that many of them had graduating high school, graduating college, their first years of college, all of those things are going to likely persist with them into alumnihood. And it's so important that we as alumni you know, engagement teams and annual giving teams are thinking about that experience that they're having and what we can be offering. So you know, one of the things I'm, again, I'm really excited about the kind of com combined team that I have is like alumni career development falls under me. And so right now, some of our most popular programming are webinars that we're hosting about how to pivot your career during COVID, how to deliver an online presentation in a way that maybe you've never done before. I think those types of assets or those types of services that we are pushing out to our young alumni population hopefully pay dividends in the future when they look back on us and say, oh, you didn't just only ask me for money. There was that time when I needed you most and you were there for me and I'm grateful and I want the next person to have that same experience, if not better. Here's my, here's my contribution. If I can comment quickly on that, I... Um... I presented with Steve Hall from Boston University at the Case District One conference a couple of years ago, and we started off the, the, the conference just by asking the people in the room, it was a room full of your advancement peers, you know, raise your hand if somebody from your school has asked you for money. Every hand in the room went up. Raise your hand if somebody from your school has reached out to say, hey, Colin, how's your career going? Is there anything we can do to help? All the hands went down. And I think that the reality is, Every organization has cost centers and revenue centers. And unfortunately, the reality of young alumni programming is it's a cost center. And uh, when push comes to shove and when budgets are tighter than ever, like they are right now in a COVID context, and you had to choose, should I hire one more person to reach out to young alumni who are facing a historically high unemployment context to say, hey, Colin, how are you doing? Can we help you get back on your feet? Or should I hire one more major gift officer the data suggests in 18 months could be generating a million dollars per year. Unfortunately, I mean, not unfortunately, it makes sense that the latter is often time the choice that we make and there's good merit because that extra million dollars might be able to help 20 more kids who otherwise wouldn't go to college, get to go to college. But it really creates this missing link, I think, around that young alumni transition. And it is such a tension because um, we all have to think about that near-term return on investment and, and the budget pressures that we feel, yet we all know that if you could just have a team of people reaching out saying, hey, Colin, I see you just moved to Chicago. Did you know that we've got a great alumni group in the area? Could I make a couple of connections for you? And no, Colin, I'm not asking for money, but I want to make it really easy so that when I do reach out to ask for money, it's going to be a no-brainer for you because you know that we were there for you along the way. And it's like, it seems so simple, but it's just logistically and budgetarily really, really complicated. I mean, have you given that consideration or how do you think about, you know, somebody comes to the Harper lecture, the major gift officer follows up. Somebody comes to the young alumni career transition panel, who follows up? Yeah. I mean, those, the complexity of, of all of this is so, I mean, it's, 
it's intense, right? And, and what you're talking about, I think, is exactly where we need to be. And in a perfect scenario, if someone attended one of our career development programs, I'd have a liaison reaching out to them, following up with them, seeing what's next for them. We are, like many, you know, we're understaffed right now. And some of the positions that I have, you know, have vacant are some of these very positions. Um, and so our, our, our productivity in the long run is, is amazing for the resources that I have. And our um, kind of wish list for what we'd like to do is all built on when we get back to kind of, you know, steady state, whenever that may be. Um, I've got, I've got uh, like roughly 10 open seats on my team right now. And they're all across both, you know, a frontline officer, someone who may be doing some more programmatic efforts. Um, and so everything is just squeezed just a little bit. And there are some things that, um, that we're not able to accomplish. But what you're saying, Brent, is exactly what I push the team to be thinking about, you know, and, and put themselves in those situations. Like we ran an entire young alumni career series, um, July through August. We'll do an entire career month for everybody in November, but we focused heavily on young alumni July through August, and the, and the attendance was, was remarkable. Every other Friday, we're offering a coffee and conversation where people just drop in and Zoom, we do breakouts, they're meeting, they're networking with people. They're some of the most successful things that we're offering. Um, in addition to things like last night, we hosted a book club with one of our humanities faculty talking about Circe, you know, the you know, New York Times bestseller. So there's, there's all kinds of things that we're offering, and some of those ideas are coming from simply asking the team what would you like your institution to be offering you right now? And what would help make that a better connection, a better relationship for you? And if it's something we can do, we're putting effort behind it and we're making it happen. Love it. Brittany, any comments on, on that thread? Yeah, I mean, that was, I loved all of those ideas um, and examples you gave, Colin. Um, I took notes, so I'll call you later. Um, but I think going back to your question, Brent, of it's a dichotomy here. What are things that we maybe need to shift as a profession versus what are things that concern me perhaps from a constituency base. And so I would agree with from Colin's perspective on the constituency base around young alumni, I would actually add families to that or parent giving uh, because I think we're actually going to see a shift in that um, very soon. You know, if I think we've all kind of felt it a little bit already, but for some of us, um, especially here at the university of Miami, that is a, a very, um, serious pipeline for us that we need to address. Um, and we only have a short period of time really compared to our alumni population. Same thing for our patient population. Um, those are far shorter in the way in which that we engage in con and convert to a gift. I would say as a profession, and I think we re we've really been speaking about this the entire time is change management and how risk adverse we actually are. And I think right now what we're seeing is the institutions, whether they're small or the size of Chicago or University of Miami, who are shifting based on efficiency models are going to outperform those who aren't. And what I mean by that is individuals who um, and teams who understand what their alumni want and then react toward their needs are going to start both engaging and, in, and generating more revenue far faster than others. And the example that Colin gave about, here's information, how can I help you? We ask and we say, we'll never get a gift if we don't ask, right? 
Well, we're never going to grow and engage if we don't ask how the audience member wants to. And in this case, it would be the alum or a young alum. I think yeah. doing more of that, while seems rational, is actually not an approach that I think we've done holistically in the profession for a lengthy period of time. One of the examples that comes to mind right now that I just need to do some follow-up research on is by way of Andy Shainlin at Brown University. And, and we'd started riffing on this about a year ago. And Andy actually was able to post a position and get it hired pre, pre-COVID um, that was basically it's called an alumni success manager. And the hypothesis is if we can do the kind of things we were just talking about, I believe this individual is basically going to be assigned to the class of 2020. And the job is to be that person who reaches out and says, hey, you just graduated. It's a crazy time. I see that you've moved to Chicago. Did you know that the Brown Club of Chicago has XYZ activities upcoming? Can I connect you to somebody? And so it's not going to be probably the kind of high touch relationship management you might expect in the major gift realm, but it really is going to be a new paradigm. And I think one of the interesting opportunities with that kind of role is it becomes very measurable. And then the hypothesis is, hey, when it comes time to solicit that individual for a gift, you might see higher conversion rates because when they are thinking to themselves, well, what has Brown done for me lately? Well, so-and-so just reached out to me to, to check on me and made a great connection and so forth. So there are examples like that. I think we're on the early uh, cusp and, uh, you know, the reality is right now, less than 2% of prospects have prospect managers assigned to them, right? Frontline officers. And so there's a lot of room between the top 2% of our population uh, and the base that we were talking about before. And I think it's, you know, there's no silver bullet. It's going to be a combination of how do we invest in better content, better storytelling, better one-to-many event programming, like you've all described, to be able to reach the base and allow the base to be included while continuing to scale more personalized, higher touch experiences, hopefully further down the giving pyramid. I do want to be sensitive uh, of time, but I do feel like uh, we've accomplished what I wanted to, which is giving our audience a window into Fight Club AKA AGDC. And so um, uh, I have no doubt you're going to have folks following up with both of you to pick your brain. Um, But, you know, any, I don't know, concluding thoughts uh, as you reflect on where you've been, where we are, where you want to take either your organization or the the sector uh, writ large, Brittany, I'll, I'll call on you first. Well, first and foremost, thank you for the invitation, Brent. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to be at the University of Miami right now. Is it, truly, it really is a group of innovators, and I'm just lucky to be part of that group. Um, it's not Fight Club, but uh, I, it's still fantastic. Um, I really would love to see my team and our team as a whole here at the U transform into a digital-first, omni-channel approach where leads are coming leads are coming in in and out by way in which that we identify passion areas and we adapt and grow based on those areas. And they're going to evolve as they should over time. And I do hope that it leads to, yes, more engagement, but more more meaningful engagement. Because at the end of the day, that's really what we're trying to achieve is connecting people's passions to an area where they can give back in a way in which that is comfortable and meaningful to them. Um, I look forward to seeing the evolution of our profession, especially over the next six months. I think it will frankly grow over the next 18 in ways in which we frankly haven't even imagined yet. 
And I'm looking forward to being part of that process. And for anyone who is listening, by all means, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I will message you back. It might not be as quick as I did with Colin, but I promise I will. Well said. Colin, bring us home. Sure thing. Well, and I'll echo Brittany's uh, thanks uh, to you, Brent, for the invitation today. It's uh, been a delight. And I would say I, I am optimistic about you know, the future of our profession. And I think despite the, the impact uh, that COVID has brought to all of us, some of the, um, some outcomes will be a, um, a doubling down on innovation. And I think, you know, the example that you shared uh, at Brown, I think is one of many we will hear. And I think the, the special part about what Andy is doing at Brown is that that person is doing everything from their desk. And I think what that means for us is that we can really think critically about the time that it takes to get on a plane and go somewhere and how we can actually be just as effective, if not more effective, sitting at our desk using, you know, tools like, like you've uh, developed or other, um, or other tools at our disposal. And I'm really excited about that and what that will mean for us as we kind of do the broad base work that we do across uh, the organization. I love every day coming to work knowing that the team that I have the privilege of working with supporting, you know, the best and brightest, you know, people who might not otherwise be able to go to college had it not been for the financial aid that was raised. Like these are life changing moments that we are all helping to bring to life. And it is incredibly gratifying. And I hope everybody who's listening is staying safe and staying well and hanging on because the world needs us doing this work more now than ever. And like Brittany, LinkedIn me, I will write you back, I promise. Thank you both so much. And I think those are really um, apt closing thoughts. I mean, we talk a lot about billions of dollars and millions of gifts, but it really is about individual lives that are impacted in small ways or in big ways. And I think that when we look at the challenges in our society right now, so many of the solutions lie within the realm of higher education and every single time that we can optimize or improve efficiency or build a better funnel it's not just about those technicalities. It's about how do we connect one human being with another human being to be able to support a third human being. And I think um, that's really where I feel a responsibility. And I know you all are uh, in, you know, among a group of leaders in the sector that are looking at this moment where there is so much inertia in higher ed and it is hard to change. And it is unfortunate that it took a global pandemic, but we cannot let this moment pass us by uh, and so it's great to be on the journey with both of you. Uh, thank you. Keep it up. And we will see you on LinkedIn. Signing off with the Raise Podcast. Cheers. Cheers.